Hey everyone, happy holidays from the DFWTO podcast and our sponsor, Diet Smoke. Diet Smoke has the premier THC products that will set you up this festive season. Whether it's gummies, shots, and vapes, Diet Smoke has the best selection to deliver the best balance. So do your silent night, deadly night the right way and go to dietsmoke.com and use code DFWTO for 50% off any item. Diet Smoke, your partner in finding the perfect THC products. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, it's Casper. And Becky. From the DFWTO podcast, and it's that time of year again. Garbage day? No, it's time for the holidays, and whether you're ready for turkey day or Santa, don't let this year be a killer. Being alone or even with family can both be stressful around this time, so let BetterHelp be that oh holy light to guide you. BetterHelp will connect you with a licensed therapist that you can switch at any time if you are unsatisfied. The choice is yours. Don't let the holidays be a horror. Go to BetterHelp.com slash DFWTO and save 10% off your first month. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash DFWTO. Happy, Happy holidays from, from Don't Fuck With The original. original. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of the DFWTO podcast. I'm your host, Casper. And I am your other host, Becky Gremlin. Here to bring you all things spooky on Wednesdays because... Wednesdays are for podcast. We're back, you guys. I hope yeah. you guys had a wonderful holiday. We also had a wonderful holiday. I, yes. I can't believe it's already New Year's, like, in a few days. <laughs> I'm still trying so to get good. over 2020 being four years ago. So I'm. I'll catch up when I'm, like... 90. But anyways. <laughs> exactly. So um, this one we're going to be talking about tonight is one that Becky had found about um, something that happened in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, shout out to Carl, uh, Brain of Blood. He is lives there. He lives mm-hmm. in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, I have been there. It's very beautiful, very mountainous. And um, I've driven through. And yes, I concur. <laughs> it's just crazy like when you found this story i was like wow like obviously you hear of stuff happening like this and everywhere in the u.s but it's just crazy when i guess they're that close yeah in a I, sense. I really wanted you know i wanted to round the year out with something holiday true crime you know every year we try to come up with something Unfortunately, even 100, 200 years ago, (laughs) this time of year, people can get crazy. Um, And this one specifically, I wanted to touch on for two reasons. One, because it was close to home. And two, because, and I think I said this at the end of of the last episode, that I just, I'm always intrigued by these much older crimes. And, you know, we've talked about quite a few here um hh holmes and the list goes on and on so uh yeah true crime can go back many 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 years and we are going to be going all the way back to 1881 so um yeah uh i 
happened to find this article. So there were several articles about this topic. Um, and I actually specifically got this topic from a, um, it was an article that I actually had found a couple of years ago of, um, or it was last year rather, of, spe of a specific top 25 list of true crime that had happened uh, and, and murders and uh, various things specifically around Christmas. And uh, this one actually ended up showing up five on the list and reading the story, you're like, okay, this is pretty interesting even for the time. And I feel like it, uh, it carries over for sure. So, um, but yeah, this article in particular is, was written by Glenn Haney and it's from rootsweb.com. Um, and it's titled, Did Christ Die for Sinners Weep? The story of the first legal hanging in Carter County, which I'm assuming is the county that Ashland, Kentucky um, derives in. So this article was written back in 2007. And it starts off, Ashland, Kentucky in 1881 was a neat orderly little city situated on the Ohio River. Life in general was not exciting in Ashland and that's the way folks liked it. <laughs> As in any town, listen. That's how I like it. I'm never mad. At this point. <laughs> but we're in Cincinnati, I so would, you know. I would welcome. <laughs> um, as in any town, it did have its share of crime. Robberies, thefts, and yes, an occasional murder. The few homicides were usually stand-up fights between drunken men over a card game or a woman and required little or no detective work to solve. And then the town would once again go back to its quiet, good life. Honestly, that sounds like Kentucky. Mm -hmm. it just it just it reminds me a lot of bobby mackey's like the, the the history between of that actual place and that area mm -hmm. pick your average ashland household and there would be the gibbons family almost everyone in town knew the gibbons family or so they would claim after the night of the tragedy for years after until the story was finally put to rest folks would reminisce about the last time they saw one or the other of the Gibbons family. There were three children. The oldest was Robert, age 17, the poor crippled boy who had lost one leg a few years earlier in a run-in with a freight car. The youngest was Sterling, who was 11, <coughs> who thankfully had the good fortune of not being home on the night our story begins. And then there was the daughter, Fanny. Physically developed beyond her 14 years. Fanny had already learned what it takes to get men to turn their heads. She was a neighborhood favorite with a magnetic personality and the looks to match. Outgoing and cheerful, she had many friends, as we, as we now know. She also had some not-so-welcome admirers. The man of the family, John Gibbons, was at home very much. Things between him and Mrs. Gibbons worked out better that way. Working odd jobs and often gone for weeks, he provided a meager income that supported his family about as well as anyone else in the east end of Ashland. The mother, Martha Gibbons, by all accounts, was a caring mother, and the family seemed to blend right in with the rest of the neighborhood. Who would guess that this plain, average family would become the center of one of the most extraordinary man-made tragedies in the entire country? 
and I guess I say that, but I think that, <coughs> excuse me, that it was probably important for the author to point out that even back then, <laughs> men could be creepy, even looking at a 14 year old and not, and nobody batting an eye about it. You know, I saw a TikTok, I think that was today or yesterday, where they were like, can we stop being okay with the fact that they're like, these couples are posting, oh, been together 35 years, and then you see their age gap now, and then when you do the math, the girl was like 14, 15, and the guy was like 25. Gross. And I'm like, why is, they're like, it's not okay. Like, what, when you're criminal not together. Offensive side criminal eye. activity. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely offensive side eye. Yeah. Yeah, handcuffs. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> jail. In jail. Prison. Ew. <laughs> like, <laughs> hashtag in prison. Hashtag jail. Hashtag oh ew. So early in the morning of December 24th, 1881, Christmas Eve, while most of Ashland slumbered, neighbors were aroused by the alarm of a fire at the Gibbons' small frame house. In a matter of minutes, the concerned townspeople rushed to the flames that lit up the sky. Groping their way inside the burning house, they were horrified to find three bodies which they quickly dragged from the flames. Those present recognized the bodies as being Fanny Gibbons, 14, her brother Robert, 17, and a neighbor friend, Emma Karako. Karako? 15. Three physicians were seen on the scene and they made a startling announcement. All three victims had their skulls smashed, which was the cause of death. Evidence was also present to lead the physicians to conclude the girls had been brutally uh, assaulted. The fire, it was surmised, had been set to cover up the crime. I was going to say, wouldn't they figure out that they would fit? And I'm like, this is the 1800s. They're not thinking about that. Um, as dawn right. broke, news of the crime quickly spread, and the entire town was in an uproar. The public was aghast at the brutality of the murders. This was not the Ashland that they knew. The horror was almost more than could be comprehended by decent people. Who amongst them could do such a thing? No one would be safe until the murderers were brought to justice. The wildest sorts of reports were circulated. All business was suspended as the grief-stricken community milled about trading rumors. When dawn broke, evidence was searched for under the smoldering house bloody sheets and pillows were found and there was an axe and a crowbar both covered with hair and blood these were all set aside as well as the night clothing of the children as evidence miss thomas who was the mother of emma was questioned emma carlco was her child from a former relationship she said that on the previous evening at around 6 o'clock, Miss Gibbons had stopped by her cottage and asked <coughs> if Emma could stay at her house overnight to keep company with Manny and Robert. Miss Gibbons and her son Sterling were going across the river to Ironton, Ohio, to visit her daughter and would be gone until the next day. As usual, Miss Gibbons was off working somewhere and it would be nice if the children had some company. The Thomas house was just across the street from the Gibbons house and Mrs. Thomas readily consented. With a smile and wave, Emma put on her coat and said goodbye to her mother. It was the last time she saw her alive. That's so wild to me. Like, when you really think about things like that, and you're like, you never know. You just never fucking know. It was a frosty, clear December night, and the neighbors reported hearing the children talking and laughing up in the early evening until it was time to go to bed, then silence. Miss Thomas was up around 4 a.m. and glanced out the window and saw nothing unusual at the Gibbons house. She went about her morning chores, and then the next she looked out, it was shortly after 6.00. 
She should have stood at the window in silent speculation. She could see an unnatural light flickering through the window inside the Gibbons house. Was it perhaps a reflection of the moon? Finally, her fears now realized the hysterical Roman... Roman. The hysterical woman <laughs> ran across the street, shrinking fire, help fire. That was all Mrs. Thomas knew. And so far, that was the most anyone knew, except for the person or persons who were responsible. Two days later, on the 26th, an overflow crowd <coughs> turned out for services. Do you need me to pause this? I'm, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. <laughs> I think whatever it was is gone. Okay. Now. So I was like, we can take a water break. That, we that, need a felt, water break. that felt better. <laughs> whatever it was, I think that, that did it. Um, two days later, on December 26th, an overflow crowd turned out for services at the Methodist ep- ep- this word. Episcopal. Thank you. I know. It takes me it's a minute. It's a lot. Um, church where their services were held to three victims. Afterwards, they were buried in a common grave at Ashland Cemetery. That afternoon, John Means, acting mayor, called a meeting to raise money for a reward and to hire detectives to find the murderers. Over $1,000 was raised in a few days. With that much money as bait, private detectives came from all surrounding states. Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin of Maysville had the backing of the townsfolk because he had some official authority. But it was another detective, J.B. Norris from Ohio, who jumped off with the first theory. The killer, according to Norris, undoubtedly was John Gibbons, the father. There was little evidence to substantiate this charge, and curiously, the fact that one of the rape victims was his own daughter was overlooked. Never, nevertheless, with nothing else to go on, much of the populace was caught up in what was purely an assumption of guilt. Even the Cincinnati Inquirer, the area's largest newspaper, which was our hometown newspaper, was calling for the arrest of the guilty fiend Gibbons. Wanted posters were rushed to print and sent out far and wide for the arrest of John Gibbons. Meanwhile, Marshal Heflin had serious doubts about the involvement of Mr. Gibbons. He reasoned that the crime could not have been carried out by just one person. Furthermore, a motive had not even been established. Heflin realized that before the investigation could get back on track, Gibbons would have to be found and cleared of the charge. On Saturday the 31st, he located Gibbons in a remote area of West Virginia. He broke the heartbreaking news to the Gibbons, who was still unaware of the tragedy. The two rode back to Ashland, where Gibbons was quickly exonerated by proof he had been in West Virginia for the entire time. Okay, well, there knocks that theory out of the water. I honestly really didn't think it was even the dad. I was like, what? I'm like, that wouldn't even make any sense, especially given that one of the victims was his own daughter. Not that people wouldn't do that, but obviously, it, was more obviously back it then. wouldn't speak to the character of that family, it sounds right. like. Humiliated, Detective Norris caught the first train out of town, I bet he did, and Heflin <laughs> became the lead detective. A few days later, a man walked into the Ashland General Store of Geiger, Powell, and Ferguson and bought a cigar. Mr. Powell waited on the man, who he knew slightly as a regular customer by the name of George Ellis. Making conversation, Powell said, Well, now, that old man Gibbons... Well, now that old man Gibbons is in the clear, I wonder who is going to take the fall on now. At this statement, Ellis was clearly startled, evading the friendly gaze of Powell, <clears throat> well, Ellis turned pale and his hand began to tremble. After regaining some control, he blurted out that he had a clue who it might be and that murmured something about state's evidence before abruptly walking out the door under what he perceived were the accusing eyes of Powell. 
I mean, not <laughs> that you weren't making yourself a right sus is like tell tell him yourself. Yeah, you were kind of making it a little obvious there. As Ellis began walking, it seemed to him that everyone was staring at him with accusing eyes. Did they know? He asked himself over and over. After walking the streets for hours, Ellis eventually found his way to a hotel room of Marshall Heflin, who invited him in. George Ellis introduced himself and said that he lived near the Gibbons house and might know something about the killings. After being seated, he asked Heflin if he would be so kind as to explain to him the legal meaning of state's evidence. Heflin informed him that anyone guilty of a crime could inform on others involved in the crime and would likely get a lesser sentence that the other, than the other guilty party. The explanation seemed to have the desired effect on Ellis, and he said that he wanted to relieve his conscience by making a statement. Hmm. Heflin, a skilled interrogator, had made a reputation for himself tracking down moonshiners over in Mason County. He knew the law and what was required to get a confession that would impress the jurors. He at once called in some witnesses to what he hoped would be a forthcoming statement from Ellis. There are at least two versions of the first confession that Ellis made implicating himself, William Neal and George Kraft, but they vary only slightly. One being more graphic in details, possibly more than one person was talking, taking down the statement, and neither were skilled stenographer. The following is the less graphic of the two versions. Okay, so this is a direct quote. A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Kraft, who stated that he was going to see Fanny Gibbons and take her some black candy, and I'm probably assuming it's licorice, and that he was going to have intercourse with her and he wanted me to come along. About midnight, the fatal night, we all started, Kraft, Neil, and myself, and when we got to the house, Kraft raised the window with, with an old axe and stepped in first. Neil followed and I stayed behind on the porch and afterwards I went in. Robbie was the first aroused and started to get up when Kraft said, you had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, you had better stay away from there when Kraft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge, then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from the bed under the stairs where he was found. The girls screamed when Kraft jumped on the bed and they both said, George Kraft, what are, what are you here for? Emma also started to jump from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. He fought, she fought him and held, and I held her while he outraged her. Neil then struck her on the head and with the big end of the crowbar and she instantly died after throwing up her hands. Kraft also had some trouble with Fanny Gibbons and called on me to come and help him. He then outraged her and killed her. Neil proposed killing the girls and after they were dead, I took some coal oil poured it over their bodies and set fire to them with a match and then left the house. Ellis claimed that they had been talking the matter over for several months and that on one occasion, while they were all working in the backyard together, Emma Thomas passed by and Neil swore that he intended to have carnal communication with her before Christmas. Kraft had made similar statements about Fanny Gibbons. Y'all are just fucking disgusting. Can I just, can I just, just saying. Yeah. Even, even all this time ago. <laughs> Absolutely foul. Just fucking foul. It doesn't end. Ellis would subsequently make several more confessions or recant an earlier confession, each made to fit the prevailing circumstances. 
Kraft and Neal were immediately arrested and taken to the county jail in Catlettsburg, about five miles away, and remarkably were placed in the same cell with Ellis. Not surprisingly, after a night in the same cell with Kraft and Neal, Ellis repudiated his confession made the previous evening, but it was too late. Of course. News of the confession had not been released to the public. Hopefully they got some licks in. Right? Beat his ass. News of the confession had not been released to the public. Nevertheless, word soon spread that the three men had been arrested in jail. For many, that was sufficient to take matters in their own hands and talk of vigilante justice was in the air. Anxious courthouse officials began to receive reports of a mob being organized in Ashland with plans being laid to storm the courthouse and seize the prisoners. The court, fearing the worst, ordered the three to be sent to jail in Lexington, Kentucky for safekeeping. Accordingly, they were placed on the Cattlesburg Ferry and started down the river, but the mob got wind of it and started in pursuit in another steamboat. After an exciting chase, the officers finally eluded the mob and arrived safely in Lexington. Exciting chase. Um, Now, I meant as far as Kraft and Neil, if Ellis was just throwing their name out there and trying to blackmail them and they have nothing to do with it at all, I hope they did beat the shit out of him because that's... That's fucked up to accuse somebody of something like, especially something like that. During a stopover in Vanceburg, Kentucky, a few reporter in Vanceburg, Kentucky, a few reporters were allowed to board the vessel and interview the prisoners. Kraft and Neil, shackled together, were eager to talk and were joking and singing with the guards. Both solemnly protested their innocence and were confident that the real murderers would soon be found. Ellis, who was shackled a distance away from the other two, and did not want to talk. In jail in Lexington, George Ellis once again made a statement. Y'all, you shut the fuck up. <laughs> in which he George, said, listen. Listen, George. It is, it's time to shut up. He said that his first statement was not true and had been forced from him by George Heflin at the point of a gun. Yeah. Who, who's believing you now? This is like the boy that cried. Like what? You're point. everything that you're like. What's what's? Yeah. What is the truth at this point? Yeah. Seriously, <laughs> on January sixteenth, William Neal and Kraft were brought back to Cattlesburg. Neal, Cattlesburg. Neal was put on trial first for the murder of Emma Carico. Her name was different in the begin, like towards the beginning. Yeah, I didn't know if it was an R Emma C. There you go. Um, there was little condemning evidence produced by the prosecution. One woman said that she saw Ellis Croft and Neil the morning of the murder, half a mile away from the murder site. Others said Neil was uneasy following the murders and told them he feared suspicion. J.D. House, a man who helped remove the bodies from the burning house, testified that he saw Neil standing 50 feet away from the blaze. There was actually no physical evidence presented at all. Then the prosecution produced their star witness, George Ellis. The defense wow. had hoped to take to see a wild, crazed man take the stand. Instead, he was calm and composed and unwavering in his testimony. Yeah, because all that before, you know, even if it was true or not, true or not, even a court of law today just is incredibly circumstantial because you're only going by their testimony. So, um, so again, this is the quote from George Ellis on the stand. I have resided in Ashland since May. I have been engaged as a laborer at Powell and House's Brickyard most of the time. I am acquainted with the prisoner, Neil, also with Kraft. We three worked together at the Brickyard. I did not see either of them during the day of December 23rd. I saw them later that night 
they came to my house and called me. I was in bed and asked what they wanted. Kraft told me to get up. They wanted to see me. I did so, put on my clothes and boots and went out to the gate. Kraft said, you must go with us. I asked him where. He said to the Gibbons and we will have some fun. I told him, no, it was too late. I won't go. They said, I have to go. And Kraft drew his revolver. Neil said, now the story has gotten crazy. <laughs> Neil said, bring him along. And we started. When we got inside the gate at the Gibbons, Kraft picked up an axe and Neil got a crowbar from under the porch, from under the porch floor. Kraft pried open the window and Neil was the first to go in, Kraft next. I did not want to go in, but Kraft drew his revolver and said, come on. And I did so. They took so the he's act. basically, I love that he's making himself the victim now. Now all of a sudden, yeah. He's like, I was held at gunpoint. All of a sudden, yeah. Out of nowhere. Um, they took the axe and the crowbar in the house with them. We passed through the front room to the second room, middle room, where the girls and Robbie were asleep. Kraft and Neil went to the bed where the girls were. Kraft took hold of Fanny Gibbons and Neil of Emma. They stifled the girls by putting their hands over their mouths and choking them. The noise awakened Robbie, who was sleeping on a lounge in the same room. Kraft, who had choked Fanny near to death, left her and struck Robbie in the head with the axe and killed him and then returned to the bed. Neil dragged Emma off the bed onto the floor and Kraft ordered me to hold her until Neil accomplished his purpose, which I did. After Neil let her up, she began to raise up crying and said she was going home to tell her mother. Neil said, I guess not, and struck her on the head with the crowbar, and she fell back on the floor dead. Kraft ordered me to come and help him. I went to the bed and put my hand on Miss Gibbons' shoulder, and Kraft outraged her, after which he got the axe and killed her. Kraft then said to me, you have done none of the killing, but you must have a hand in it, and ordered me to get the coal oil and pour it over the dead body of the girls. I did and Kraft set them on fire, and we left the house. When we got out, we separated. I going home. I don't know where they went. I got home about half past three o'clock, and my wife and my wife to make breakfast. I laid down but did not go to sleep. I heard the cry of fire about half past five when I was at breakfast. I went to the burning house but did not stay long. On the following Sunday morning, when Kraft and I met at the place where the house was burned, and Kraft asked me to take a walk, we went out towards the cemetery. He began to talk about the affair and said it must be kept quiet. We met Neil and we all talked about it. They wanted me to sign a pledge never to tell about it. I told them I would think about it. They told me I better do it than, than that. And if I did not do so by the next Saturday night, they would put an end to me. We separated and we separated. I went home and Kraft and Neil went away together. That's quite a statement. And... <laughs> vastly different than the one before. Oh, so, 100%. It's like... The defense team was headed up by Thomas R. Brown. Curiously, he was the son of the pres presiding Judge Brown. The key witness for the defense was Miss Ellis, who was called and testified that she awoke at midnight and at 4.30 a.m. and her husband was there each time. She said she heard no noise and did not believe her husband even left the house that night. Earlier when visiting her husband in jail, Miss Ellis was overheard pleading with her husband to tell the real truth. Oliver Hampton was called and testified that Ellis said in front of him and AC that both Neil and Kraft were innocent. Several reliable witnesses were called to prove Neil's character. Mrs. Neil was present, crying at times while Neil sat at a table scribbling on a piece of paper and conversing with his lawyer. He was described as looking much younger than his 36 years of age with light hair and a dark mustache. He and his wife have two small children. 
On February 6th of 1882, only a, <clears throat> after only 17 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Neil guilty, sentenced him to hang on February 14th, 1882. A few days later, Kraft was convicted on the same evidence and also sentenced to the gallows on the same date. Murder happened on Christmas Eve and they were going to die on Valentine's, Valentine's Day. George Ellis would confess and recant at least oh my God. half a dozen times. Wow. Each with greater conviction than the other. Even his own wife was like, bro, just, just give it up. Like, please, please tell the truth. In February of 1882, he made a statement to Cincinnati newspaper in which he said that he and two Negroes, this is obviously how they spoke back then, that he hired committed the murders, that he alone assaulted and killed the girls while his, while his accomplices held them down. He said as they crept away from the Gibbons house that he saw Kraft and Neil walking along the street and decided to put the blame on them. A few days later, he denied he ever made the statement. In May of 1882, Ellis was returned from Lexington to Catlettsburg to stand trial. Throughout the trial, his wife sat beside him, often in tears. On Friday, June 2nd, he was found guilty and sentenced to life. Most observers felt the sentence was befitting and hoped that one chapter would now be closed. That night, around midnight, a group of about 20 men with black hoods covering their faces took over the engine house of the Chatteroy Railroad in Ashland ordered the watchmen to hitch up two flat cars, after which they proceeded to Catlettsburg. They arrived about 3 a.m., halting across the street from the jail. Converging on the jail, they demanded admittance, which was refused. Storming it by force, George Ellis was soon let out. He was taken back to Ashland, where he was hanged on a sycamore tree near the scene of the murders. Witnesses said that Ellis met his fate calmly as though he knew this time was coming and he made his final statement. As in his original confession, he said that he, Kraft, and Neil were guilty. His last request was that his body not be mutilated. He declined the opportunity to pray, saying that he was prepared to die. The sycamore tree stood about 100 yards from the burned house. On the same tree, on the same limb, was the swing that the neighborhood children had played on happier days. The body of Ellis was allowed to hang until the next afternoon when it was cut down by the coroner. Death was ruled to have come at the hands of person or persons unknown. On a on appeal, okay. oh, just just because it was short. Yeah, you're fine. It is short. Some of these are only like a sentence, <laughs> I know. Like two sentences on appeal, Kraft and Neil won a new trial. Many people, both in Ashland and elsewhere, positively considered the pair to be innocent. As they saw it, if you take away the testimony of that deranged Ellis, what evidence was there? Considering that the pair won most of their appeals and execution stays, it would seem that officials in the state government were also not convinced of their guilt. All the while, the two were becoming nationally famous and received offers to tell their stories on a lecture tour, provided, of course, they won their release. Newspaper correspondents would interview them regularly, whereupon they, would, they both expressed confidence that they would soon be released. The reward still had not been paid, so there was still an occasional arrest. In June of 1882, two black men were charged by a black detective, arrested and brought to Catlettsburg charged with the crime. At the first hearing, the charges were thrown out. Afterwards, outside the courtroom, the detective was beaten and shot in the leg by supporters of the two charged men. I wonder if they just killed Ellis because they were tired of him. <laughs> Lying? 
They were like, you know what? And the only way we're going to get this fucker to shut up like is like every we just, other time. We're like, done. <laughs> like, we're so... Jesus. The case dragged on until the fall of 1882 when the prisoners were again sent to Catlisburg for the trial murder guard of five companies of state militia. Responding to threats of violence, Governor G.W. Blackburn threatened that if need be, the whole country of Boyd would be killed. Sorry, county, county of Boyd would be killed. <laughs> If necessary to uphold the law, mob violence, he said, would not be tolerated. As the trial began, an application for a change of venue was made by the attorneys of Kraft and Neal. Judge George N. Brown granted the change of venue, and the new trial date was set for February of 1883. Yeah, so this is a year after cheese uh, that they would have originally been. been well, it was mom. Ellis's fault. Ellis wouldn't shut the fuck up, so he kept confusing everybody. And then they finally were just like, <laughs> you need to shut up. Um, this time, the trials would be in neighboring Carter County. The prisoners were to be transported back to Lexington to await the new trial. In an age that was accustomed to quick justice, the wheels were turning too slow, too slow to suit many in the Ashland community. Where was justice? What about the dead children and their still grieving parents? That night, Major Allen, commanding the militia that guarded the prisoners, received information that a mob was forming in Ashland, whose aim it was to use George Ellis's sycamore tree twice more. Abandoning the original plan of transporting the prisoners by rail, which would take them through Ashland, Major Allen once again chose a riverboat. A passing steamer, the Granite State, was requisitioned to make the trip upriver to Maysville. As the steamer was being loaded, a train arrived from Ashland with 200 armed men and boys. The mob demanded that Neil and Kraft be handed over to them. Major Allen refused, and the last of his troops boarded the Granite State and started downstream with the prisoners. The mob reboarded the train, which ran alongside the river between Catlettsburg and Ashland. They kept up a hail of gunfire upon the troops on the steamboat all the way to Ashland. The militia did not return the fire. At Ashland, the mob was met by a large crowd of people who congregated along Front Street and the riverbank to watch the scene. As the Granite State came into sight, it was observed that the soldiers had concealed themselves behind articles from the boat, which they piled in front of them. About 20 men and boys from the mob took possession of a ferry boat and swung out into the river to intercept the steamboat. Cooler heads argued with the 20 hotheads to let it go, but the mob was not to be contained. As the ferry boat approached the steamer, a few pistol shots rang out. With that, the troops, rang, the troops ragged in line along the decks of the Granite State, opened fire with disastrous effect. Stunned and completely outmatched, the group aboard the ferry boat dived for cover as round after round of fire came in their direction. Hundreds of rounds were fired. Many fired wildly, found a target on shore on the bank of the river and on the streets and houses of Ashland. Killed at once were Colonel L.W. Reppert, an aged citizen who had earlier tried to keep the mob from boarding the ferry, and George Keener, a young father. Willie Sari, age 14, and Alexander Harris, age 25, would die from wounds within hours. James McDonald, brother-in-law of the murdered Gibbons children, was shot three times. Mrs. H.B. Butler was shot in the thigh while sitting in the train de depot. Jesus, just sitting there waiting to catch a train. <laughs> Get shot in the leg. Sounds kind of like modern day. Leaving the scene of chaos in their wake, the boat steamed on to Maysville without further incident. There would be an inquest into the ugly shooting affair. 
in Ashland, but it was ruled justifiable. So that was the other reason why I really love this story. Because, again, like, even though it happened so long ago, this relates. Right. Like, you know, maybe substitute the ferry boat for something. But, like, this this could happen. This could even happen oh, today, yeah. you know. Um, in early February of 1883, craft guarded by 10 divisions of state militia was put on trial in Grayson before Carter County Circuit Judge Rice. The militia camped north of town in what was described as the most wretched conditions of ice, sleet, mud, and snow. The exact location is unknown, but was most likely between what is now 3rd and 4th Streets. One trooper would later die from the exposure, and several were hospitalized. Although unhappy about the troop occupation, the Grayson citizens remained orderly. I almost said elderly. (laughs) On Friday, February 23rd at 8 p.m., the case was given to the jury. After about 10 minutes, they returned to the courtroom and reported that one juror, a Mr. DeHart, had taken ill. It was later asserted that one juror was opposed to capital punishment and the delay was needed to correct his misguided belief. Judge Rice postponed the trial until Saturday morning. The next morning, 21 minutes after the jury was out, they returned with a verdict of guilty. Everyone in attendance, except for Kraft and his team, seemed satisfied with the verdict. There was no clapping or cheers, but most observers nodded their approval. Kraft was asked if he had anything to say. He stood up, cleared his throat, and made a short but impassioned speech. I can say one thing. I'm not guilty of that charge. I did not have time to put all of my witnesses here that I ought to have had. What do you mean you didn't have time? You had over a year and a half. Yeah. Um, I consider that I have not had a fair trial, for I know I am not guilty of that. I never as much laid my hand on them. I never did. You might as well take a little innocent child and hang them as to hang me. The closest I was to Miss Gibbons' house that night was when I lay in bed at home asleep. I did not see the house, nor George, nor Bill. Or any of the children that night. The last time I saw any of Miss Gibbons' children was on Wednesday before that. I saw little Fanny and spoke to her. That was one last, That was the last time. I was aroused by the alarm of fire. I could, knowing the children were burned up, stand on the scaffold and hold my hand up and swear in the sight of heaven that I did not see those children. Neil or Ellis, that night, I am as innocent as the angels of that thing. Oh, did you? Yeah. Want to he uh, also said, I never thought of such a thing. I was better raised and had more respect for the people about me. I respected Miss Gibbons and her children. I'm glad I can stand here and say that I am innocent. It is the truth. It is put up job, gentlemen. The day is coming when I will be found innocent. All at once, his speech was interrupted by the wailing of Mrs. Gibbons. Oh, my dear children, if they were only here now, she cried out as she continued to, sh- as she continued to sob. She was led out of the courtroom. Frustrated by the interruption, Kraft took his seat and said no more. The judge then set the date for hanging for May 4th of 1883. Kraft fell in love with the guard and marched to camp. Before noon, the soldiers struck tents and preparations were made to leave on the Eastern Kentucky Railroad troops. Sorry. Eastern Kentucky Railroad for Riverton and the Ohio River. The troops rode on flat cars with seats improvised from planks while the officers and their prisoner rode in a coach. Governor Blackburn, evidently not wanting it on his conscience, refused to confirm the May 4th date of execution as required by law, and the execution was delayed until after his term. The next executive, Governor Knott, set the date for October 12th of 1883. 
Friends of Kraft were untiring in their efforts to save his life, claiming that they had evidence of his innocence that they would produce at Neil's trial next February. They urged for a respite of Kraft's sentence until after Neil's until after Neil's trial, but they were denied. On October 11th, Carter Sheriff Holcomb, with an escort of special deputies, brought Kraft back to Grayson for the final time. The population of the village had swollen from about a thousand inhabitants to an estimated throng of three thousand who had arrived to see the hanging. The condemned man spent the evening with his brother and two brother-in-law, singing and praying and bantering with the crowd through his open barred jail window. He retired around midnight and rose at six in the morning. The early morning was spent with the Reverend Pinkerton and surrounded by guards was driven a half mile to the little Sandy river and baptized on the return trip. Many greeted him and ladies handed him flowers. That's kind of gross, but okay. <laughs> I just, my, I'm like, you really think he's innocent? It's <laughs> like, I don't understand why you think he's innocent. He was married. He was didn't wanting to diddle a child. He then essayed a child and killed a child. I'm just like, no, absolutely not. The gallows was located on the northeast part of town at the foot of a hill enclosed by a fence of 12 feet high. But now, was that according to him or according to Ellis? But the thing is, is that when Ellis had nothing left to lose, he went back to his original statement. Yeah. The statement that he made after he thought he was going to be caught. So I kind of feel like his first statement was true. And I kind of feel like his last statement was true. Because at that point, he had nothing left to lose. Like, why would he lie when he's about to die, you know? That's true. That, that you know, I mean, and that does And it was his only two statements that matched. That, yeah. You know? When the other four were 1,400. Oh, yeah. Why? Um, the enclosure was 30 feet square. The gallows about 8 feet square and had a 6-foot drop and trap in the center. The site chosen for the hanging was at the same location where the militia had camped and suffered the previous February. Kraft wanted to walk to the gallows but was driven in a buggy surrounded by a strong guard. On approaching the gallows, the large crowd was separated and the party entered the enclosure. Kraft ascended the steps in full view of the crowd accompanied by the Reverend Pinkerton and the sheriff. In Kraft, the spectators saw a compact, well-built man. So they saw a compact, well-built man in his middle 30s with black eyes and bushy black hair. Black eyes. Jesus. He appeared calm but anxious. Quiet was called for and Kraft began a long address in which he reasserted his innocence. He then sang a hymn, did Christ die for sinners weep, and suffered and offered up a fervent prayer to God to save his soul. Then all being prepared, he stepped on the trap, weeping and crying, Lord, receive my soul, and thus was sent on his way. The last of the trio, Neil was tried again in Grayson and on April 30th, 1884, was once again sentenced to die. He was then sent to Mount Sterling, Kentucky to await his execution. Appeals would delay the date and time and time again. On March 3rd, 1885, Neil, who had been held in the Mount Sterling Jail, was loaded aboard the train bound for Grayson and his date with the gallows. On the train platform, he made a short speech to his supporters and the curious onlookers. Farewell, good people. I hope to meet you in heaven. I am persecuted to my death by Campbell and Redland, who persecuted themselves and bulldozed that lunatic George Ellis into swearing lies against me. It's a fearful thing to walk up on the gallows and die for a crime I did not commit, Bear in mind that I will be proved innocent of this charge, just as I say now, I am innocent. I have 
I have to be dragged back and hung like a dog for what I didn't do. I thank the citizens of Mount Sterling for their kindness to me. I hope to meet you in a better land. This execution was also postponed. It seems like everything about this fucking thing is just postponed. And returned to Mount Sterling for safekeeping. On March 28, 1885, Neil was again brought to Grace and to Hang. There would be no more appeals, no more train rides. Firm and composed, he ordered eggs and bacon and coffee for supper, breakfast, and dinner, and refused visits of ministers until morning. At one o'clock, he was taken to the gallows, escorted by a hundred guards armed with double-barreled shotguns, where a large crowd estimated of 3,000 was waiting to witness his execution. Neil ascended the scaffold with great composure and said his final words. My friends, I say to one and all, you know this is no place to tell a lie. I stand here today to suffer for a heinous crime I did not commit. One day my innocence will be established beyond a doubt. I bid you one and all goodbye. O Lord, thou knowest I am innocent. Into thy hands I commit my soul. I am innocent. The last words were said just as the drop fell. In ten minutes he was pronounced dead. None of his relatives were present, but his body was claimed and he was buried on a hill back of his father-in-law's place near Catholicburg. The scale of justice is rarely tilted far to one side. The truth of what happened that night in 1881 will never be known. Up until the time of the brutal murder, all three of the accused men had seemingly lived normal lives, with no hint in their background to suggest that they had in them such savagery. The odds that all three would expose that repressed side of their personality at the same time seems remote. Nevertheless, not just one, but several juries voted the same way guilty as charged. Surely they could not all be wrong, or could they? One of the detectives who worked on the case but was not called to testify made a thought-provoking observation. How could Ellis, Kraft, and Neil know the children were alone? Only three people knew that the children were alone, Miss Givens, her son Sterling, and Mrs. Thomas. Given that logic, it would seem that at least one of them would have been involved. All that is certain is, after all, was said and done. A dozen or so people died. A similar number were seriously wounded, and many lives were forever upended. The case would be debated for years after an even occasional arrest made, until finally it was quietly nudged aside. So there's some notes at the bottom that state, um, Mrs. Gibbons died in Ashland, uh, September 18th, 1903. The tree that hung Ellis was still standing in 1903 in the yard of the Standard Furniture Company. And the location of the Gibbons home was at 28th Street and Carter Avenue. So, yeah, that's crazy. That and is even, quite a story. Even after all this time, you're talking a uh, 142-year unsolved murder. I mean, what, in all reality, like, what do you think? Do you have a, what is the word I'm looking for? A possible thought of what happened? See, my honest thing is that with murders like this, and what I take into account is more, um, I look into murders like the Velisca Axe murder, the Torso murders, I look into murders like that, especially older ones back then, around the turn of the century, where I think more likely than not, especially in towns like that, where there was a rail car system nearby, where there were rivers nearby, where river boats were accessible, where paddle boats were accessible, 
that it was more than likely that it is vagrants coming through that town. I really, really believe that. I think that that was a lot more common back then than what people think. Yeah. Because how easy was it? I mean, it was still like, even though this wasn't in the West, like this is such a commonly used phrase. It, it was the wild, wild West. I mean, there was, you're talking nothing. This is like very primitive compared to what we have now. Um, literally just newspapers. Uh, you know, the Cincinnati Inquirer, they mentioned now only exists online. It's not even in print anymore. Um, you know, this is, the age of zero technology as far as what we have now. I don't even know if they were doing maybe, maybe tintype photos. Like there were no, it, it's yeah. So I think it was so common back then that if somebody really just wanted to travel from town, if somebody was that sadistic and that fucked up and that psychopathic, because that existed back then. I mean, there may have not been words for it like there are now, like they have existed much, much, much later. But I think that if you did have that type of person, how easy it would be for them to just travel from town to town, take on assumed identities, have false paperwork, and just kill people and just hop on the next boat or train car and leave town and never think anything of it and let it be blamed and pinned on some poor innocent person that takes the rap because who they don't they don't fucking care at that point they're off to the next city where they're going to turn around and do it all over again and i think that there were i i bring up the Velisca axe murders and the torso murders as well because i think we dealt we delved into both of those a lot in that same episode and i think even then i i had kind of the same answer that it was just some random person i think that was just so much easier to get aware to get away with back then and i think there's so many things that point to that specifically in this this murders case especially with all the times mentioned how close there was a railway nearby and the ohio river um it's just you know it's the makings for perfect crime back then for just a total psychopath that would have the means and the ways to to do that and get away with it. Um, See, I agree with you to a point because I do. But agree. I also agree with your theory that it is possible that I actually Ellis, think though Ellis had something to do with it. You don't react like that if you didn't, or if you didn't know something. He had to have known. Maybe he knew the people that came through the town and did it. Maybe it was family. Maybe, you know, I'm like, you don't just start shaking and acting weird as hell if you don't have something, some kind of involvement. So more than likely that he was covering up for it. I think that just what it, what didn't make sense to me is that his wife was saying that he was there that night. Yeah. That he never left. So why do you keep making that up? That if you were never physically there, if your own wife is saying it doesn't sound to me like she was making it up. It sounds to me like she was just begging him to tell the truth. Like, you never left. You were there. She's probably like, why are you like, making a fake confession? That it sounds more like that maybe he's covering up for somebody. So I could see that point being brought up now that you mentioned going back to the article of how, you know, that and that being brought up of how nervous he initially was. And I mean, like, nervous enough to the point that, like, okay, he has something to do with this. Or knows. Um, or knows something. That it's 
prob the okay. So if you take that into account, it's probably more likely that it was somebody that Ellis knew, or that he was some that if he wasn't physically there, he was somehow involved. Mm-hmm. Maybe so, he gave this person the address. Maybe you know, it could be anything. Maybe he didn't really have anything to do with it, but he was. Like, when he found out what actually happened, he was like, oh, shit. I basically killed them. And it was a guilty conscience kind of thing. You know, there's a, there's so many different things that it could be. But your theory, I don't feel like you can rule out either. Because, like you said, fucking Jack the Ripper. If it was actually H.H. H. Holmes, he fucking left America, went to England, did some shit, and then left. And would have had the money... To do it. Right. Yeah. So. So there's yeah, plenty of ways it could have happened. Yeah. I think both of our. I think both. Both of our scenarios are definitely, definitely plausible. But. Um, we'll never yeah. know. And that kind of sucks I mean, it's though. crazy. 142 years, man. That is wild. That is wild. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I really. That. I. I really love the way that story was structured, especially sort of, it really set it up to, like I kept mentioning before, that that is something that really could have, that could possibly happen in present day, especially if there really is that connection with Ellis knowing who it is and maybe just giving up Neil and Kraft as the fall guys, because I mean, shit, he, it could have been personal. He could have not liked them. Whatever. Um, I feel like there's just so many. And maybe they were innocent men. Maybe they had absolutely nothing to do with it. And they're just like, we're just getting caught in this fucking cross crossfire because of Ellis's big fucking mouth that he couldn't shut. <laughs> yeah. That's just wild. Um, well, we hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Um... A 142-year unsolved cri Christmas crime. Christmas crime. Christmas Eve crime um, for you guys. So uh, we hope you guys did have a great Christmas, great Hanukkah, great Kwanzaa, great whatever you celebrated. Um, and to have a happy new year next year. <laughs> Are we gonna I see next you next week, year. My dad does it, and that's the only person that I will accept it from. Your dad is very much a it, dad it's, guy. It's so. only it, so I will only anybody okay. else. I'm like he is allowed. No. Um, <laughs> next week, rather, um, we will be taking another break. Um, I am having some more dental work done on Wednesday. So just in case something happens, knock on wood, guys, say a little special prayer, put out all the good juju for me that it's not crazy, that I don't have to have another fucking root canal, um, that it's just some routine, but I think I'm just going to lay low and take it easy that day. Uh, that's just a lot to deal with all in one day and try to talk. So, um, so instead of new year, new year, new me, it's new year, new teeth, new teeth. Yes. That's how we're going. In the new <laughs> that's year. how we're doing it. Okay. Yes. That's how we're going into 2024. New teeths. New teeths. New teeths. Um, and then the week after our brand new episode of the new year. Um, I don't want to mix that up because I thought we were doing No, the, the week after we are, that's Victoria's episode. Yeah. 
Yep, the 10th, we will be releasing a new episode with Victoria Fortuga. If you guys remember her, she was an actress in Cold Blows the Wind and a writer. And uh, Lexi, that mm-hmm. is still streaming on 2B, if you guys want to check that out. Um, we graciously met her at Horror Hound. Um, we had a wonderful interview with her, if you guys want to go back and listen to the original one. Uh, Cold Blows the Wind is now... Available, available on um the website VOD on their website mm-hmm. so uh we'll be gonna... talking all about that and letting you guys have all of the info where you can find it and all of that yeah stuff. yeah we're gonna be promoing that heavy we definitely want to do that she's a friend of the show now and we really enjoyed that movie and and lexi as well um so now you can watch both of them you can stream both lexi and cold blows the wind so there you and go. highly recommended. It. It's very good. Yeah, it's oh, very it's, good. It, it is. It really was. Um, there's some great selections. I can't wait for next. They year. have merch, and I'm kind of wanting to get merch. Just can afford it. Always support with merch if you can afford anything. If you right can now, afford it, because life is expensive right now. Yeah. Um, but, I'm so tired. Yes. <laughs> um. So guys, yes, next week. No episode. We will be coming back the week after with a great interview episode. So very check excited that out. All right, guys. Well, of course, have a wonderful and happy new year because you deserve to. New year, new you. Do whatever you need to do. If you need to make resolutions, do it. If you don't keep them within the first week, that's okay. If you need to make some paper, this is I did this one year. I highly recommend doing this. If there's anything you want to leave in the year write it down on a piece of paper and write your name on it and then burn it on the new year that's that's actually very freeing it's very nice um but of course we have all of the socials at facebook x and instagram at dfwto podcast the handle is dfwto8811 if you have any questions concerns want to say hey or give us any podcast suggestions you can email us at dfwto8493 at gmail.com and, of course, give us a follow and a subscribe on Google Podcasts, Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't. We can always take criticism, and we always want to do our best for you. So make sure to leave that. Um, also, go buy our merch because it's cool. And Horror Hound is in three months, so that's fucking insane. If you um, are affording life, then please support to help us afford life and <laughs> buy our merch. Please Eventually, and, we would like, we would really like to have enough money from the merch and from the podcast to be able to get a booth at Horror Hound. That would be yeah. the dream. Um, it's just not in the books right now, especially because my house was like, I'm old. I need new parts and of all of the big things. I am old and also need new parts, apparently. You know, so. fucking same. I need a new back. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Same. Exactly. But anyway... <laughs> Thanks again, guys, of course. Thanks for all your support when we love you. And remember, don't don't fuck with the original. original. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, bye.